Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Broadcasting around the nation, on your radio, on your TV, and online. This is the Bill Press Show. That's right, the Bill Press Show this Friday, August 11th. Good morning, good morning. I'm Igor Volsky of uh, the Center for American Progress Action Fund of the Thinking Cap podcast of all of those things. Sitting in for Bill Press on this, what I hope will be a beautiful Friday in D.C., uh, good morning, Peter Ogburn. I, I like your optimism. I'm very optimistic. I mean, this could be one of those slow news dump, you know, slow days and then a big news dump right at the end of the day. One of those classic D.C. Fridays. We're due for one of those. We're due for one of we those. Had a, like, this week was relatively, uh, well, I wouldn't say non-eventful, but we didn't have any of the news dumps at the end Trump of the day. Trump is on vacation. So yeah. this, is, uh, this is what we get. We get a lot of tweets. And we also got this week... Uh, yesterday, a press conference where he just wouldn't shut up. I mean, the man talked about a whole range of topics. We'll get into all of that. And most importantly, we'll dissect the North Korea situation and figure out, should we be worried? Should we really be scared? Or is this, are the dynamics of the North Korea conflict uh, gonna keep us safe. Is there enough deterrence in the knowledge that the North Korean regime has that if they use their weapons, that their regime will fall? We'll get into what exactly Trump can do, what America should do uh, to uh, to make sure we don't get into a nuclear war. The key word here is de-escalate, Peter. De-escalate, de-escalate, de-escalate. Yeah, it so, feels like it. So all of that, and of course also the fate of Mitch McConnell, Trump lashing out at Mitch McConnell yesterday at that presser saying that if Mitch can't pass health care reform, if he can't do infrastructure, if he can't do tax reform, these are all Republican priorities, he should leave. He should, uh, well, not leave directly, but, you know, uh, ask him again, he said. We'll get into all of that. A big, you know, not a, not a huge news week, um, but one where we thought, you know, maybe the president was going to take some time off, was going to relax a little bit, was going to maybe stay off the Twitter. Maybe we thought uh, his new chief of staff would 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 keep things calm and bring some order, order to the situation. Doesn't appear that way. And Peter, I'll also get into my favorite news of the week, mm-hmm. uh, which was the giant chicken behind cool. the White House very uh, cool. a great little little protest that was that was put together a chicken in the White House um, with the Trump hair with the Trump, the Trump yeah with with the Trump hair uh, you know they're redoing the White House now Trump is on vacation he's not there um, but um, the chicken is but the chicken yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, ch- the chicken is there 
is there watching and, and, and making sure, uh, you know. I mean, I, sometimes I think we were governed by a chicken. I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? Hard to tell between the inflatable chicken with the bad haircut and the president of the United States. It's hard to tell the difference sometimes yeah. in the way they behave, too. <laughs> anyway. Folks, they're both full of hot air. The, oh, there you, you go. You know what I'm saying? There you go. But seriously. There you go. That's pretty good. And then, of course, the biggest news for me is that after this show, I am going on vacation, by the way. Wait, are you, you're, you're like going on an actual vacation? I'm going on an actual vacation. I'm going to Colorado. Could, oh, I'm going I thought you said Montana. you were going to Guam. Guam, I hear, is lovely I this had to time cancel here. the Guam trip. Yeah. I had to. I mean, there, weren't, there were non-refundable tickets, but I said, screw it. You're going to Colorado? Colorado. Now, I don't want to alarm you, but they have legal marijuana there, Igor. Seriously? Yeah, you can just go in there. You can just buy marijuana now. Just go in there? Yeah, you just, you just go in. They got stores everywhere. They you can just marijuana. buy it? Yeah, isn't that wild? That's crazy. Yeah. Oh. So you can do that. All right, well, I'll have to check out some tourist pamphlets. <laughs> to see are you going to do, like, see. are you doing any of the outdoor stuff in Colorado? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go hiking. Yeah. I'm going to go, you know, enjoy the nature. The whole point here is to completely unplug. To completely unplug. I was going to ask you, because, like, I did, I went out of town a couple of weeks ago, and I deleted Twitter. From my phone. Ooh, that's a big step. Deleting Twitter. I don't know if I could delete Twitter. Uh, you should. I can't. Should I? You I, think I, I should really delete Twitter? I really recommend it. I highly recommend it. All right, I'll think it. about deleting Twitter. Do it. I'll think about it. Do it. This is the Bill Press Show. All right, Bill Press Show this Friday, August 11th, 2017. Good morning, I'm Igor Volsky, filling in for Bill Press. Uh, I'm from the Center for American Progress Action Fund, but also of the Thinking Cap podcast. It's our weekly podcast that breaks down the ideas and the voices behind the resistance. Download it anywhere you get your podcast, iTunes, Apple, Stitcher, Google Play, I don't know, wherever you get it. We, we really would appreciate a listen. We have a lot of fun doing it, me and my co-host Michelle Juwando, and we think you'll have fun listening to it. So go ahead and subscribe to the Thinking Cap podcast. Uh, lots to get to this week. You know, we were saying that um, Trump was on vacation, but of course that doesn't mean that he stopped being ridiculous. And, you know, we often kind of mock and make fun of Trump and, and comedians certainly have a lot of fun with him, and they should. But when it comes to uh, matters of war and when it comes to matter to matters of, uh, well, let's say uh, nuclear weapons, that rhetoric that he spouts can be uh, very, very dangerous. I'm talking, of course, about North Korea, uh, a conflict that, you know, presidents before Trump have really struggled to deal with. And the basic issue here is that North Korea now, we know now, has nuclear weapons, has nuclear capabilities. There's a question about whether or not it can actually deliver those weapons um, to uh, Guam, which it's threatening, uh, to other parts of the United States if its program is advanced enough to do that. I mean, look, you know, American intelligence agencies didn't think it was as far along as it clearly is. So, so who knows what they're capable of? And the question is, you know, after years of failed efforts to try to rein in North Korea's nuclear program, 
Uh, what can we do? What should the Trump administration do? We'll get into all of that and figure out, is there an actual viable path towards de-escalating the situation um, and towards, you know, ensuring that uh, there's not this crazy guy with nukes who's threatening South Korea, Japan, Guam. Um, and what levers does the Trump administration have to have to push? What is the Trump administration North Korea strategy? I actually don't think anybody knows the answer to that question. Uh, yesterday, while golfing, uh, Donald Trump uh, took a couple of minutes to get out of his golfing outfit, uh, which, by the way, Peter, I, I have not gone golfing. I don't know if you have. Wait, you've I, never gone I, golfing? I, I, it's, no, I've never gone you've golfing. You've never once gone golfing? I've never once done that. Uh, I would be bad at it, I feel like. Um, I, uh, but I don't understand the outfits that are worn in golf. Oh, like, no, no, What no, is no, that no. It's white? It's so ridiculous. What, why do they wear that? Does that help with the game? Okay, is that... no. In fact, so the whole culture around the, the, the golf attire is really, I mean, it, it's a whole thing, right? It's a whole subculture. But, like, you should wear a collared shirt. But why? Why can't you wear like a T-shirt? There's a What's thing. The... There's a whole. There's a whole. I, I, don't, I don't really know. How to All right. Well, next it. time we'll do the history of golf. But I do it, like and... shorts and it. But you, you should go. We should go play golf. Why don't really? you go play golf? Yeah. Why not? Maybe. It's a nice time. Okay. I'll, I'll play think, golf. I'll think about it. Hey, come on. But he took a second uh, from his golfing duties. He, I mean, he is the golfer in chief. I mean, how many days has he spent? It's some crazy. It's like fifty days. We, or we something. talked about this the other day. Yeah, we were at day two hundred, and I think we were at. I think it was like forty-four days. Yeah, of it's course. insane. It's insane. So he, you know, he's clearly bored, uh, and he's clearly just kind of trying to to vent and, and blow off some steam. Uh, and so he came out and he did this press conference outside of his club there. And I didn't even realize, and they're showing that the picture now on some of the TVs, you wouldn't know it from the shots that Mike Pence, the vice president, was also there. But he was just like kind of standing there staring up all dear leader-like at Trump. Uh, Trump ended up taking a whole bunch of questions, and obviously the the the, the center here uh, was reporters wondering what what is your plan for North Korea? What is your response to what North Korea is doing? Um, and how do you push back against North Korea's promise to attack Guam? Here's how Trump responded to that. Let's see what he does with Guam. Okay. He does something in Guam. Let's wait and see. It will be an event uh. the likes of which nobody's seen before, what will happen in North Korea. Okay, all right, yeah. all right, all right. I just have to point out yeah. one thing here really quickly. For all of the grief that Bar and, and I'm, I, am, I promise I'm not doing the, the, this to Obama, and this is what they're doing to Trump, because that'll drive you crazy. You know, If you do, do this all the time, you go completely insane. But, like, the whole knock on people who criticized Barack Obama's foreign policy was the whole leading from behind. Leading from behind. Leading That's what everybody behind. said. But Barack yeah. Obama never said, let's, let's wait, wait and, and see. see if one of our territories gets effing bombed. It's remarkable, right? This idea, let's and wait and then we'll and take see. an action. Let's, let's see what, what he does with let's Guam. See, yeah, let's see what he does. Let's, let's see what he does, what he does, with, does Guam. with Guam. And if it's something serious, I'll, you know, take a break from my golf game and I'll go handle it. Let's, let's see, see what, he, what does. he does with Guam. With Guam. I mean, that's really the definition <laughs> of leading from behind. It is the definition of leading from behind. 
I mean, wait and see if one of our territories gets hit by a bomb. And I got to say. And then we'll figure something out. I got to say, Peter, this Trump, like, new Trump policy of all of a sudden just threatening the world with a nuclear war is really unbelievable to me. And also the coverage of it has been kind of stunning in the sense that people cover it as, oh, it's crazy rhetoric and Trump being Trump saying crazy things. He didn't even write it down on his paper. He just said it off the cuff. I mean, for decades, the United States has had a policy of deterrence when it comes to nuclear capability and has said that it will never preemptively use these nuclear weapons that we have. It will only use weapons if provoked, if in response. And here he is literally threatening to kill millions of people. I mean, we have a United States president who's threatening to kill millions of people who, frankly, and somebody should do, I mean, it's hard because it's going to be in the Korean, but maybe maybe somebody did this and I didn't see it, but like a mesh-up of what the kind of rhetoric that Kim Jong-un uses, the leader of North Korea, and this stuff that Trump has been saying, because it's very similar. I mean, we're used to hearing this kind of crazy rhetorical bluster from Kim, Kim Jong-un. We're not used to hearing it from an, from an American president, yet here it is. Yet here it is, and then the question becomes, well, is it useful? What's the purpose? Is there a plan? Is there a broader strategy? And really... I think the foreign policy establishment is kind of divided on this. On one hand, you have some people who think, well, maybe this is strategic. Maybe what Trump really is doing is kind of showing to the North Koreans that he's unpredictable, that he's crazy, that who knows what he's going to do, and that that in itself, that kind of attitude will serve to deter Kim Jong-un. Wait who, a minute. Wait a minute. Yes. Wait a minute. People don't actually. People do say this. People don't actually. Oh, yeah. No, Can there's. Really? there's um, Yeah, there is a. Uh, like, uh, I, I would love to be the person who sees what Donald Trump is doing and sit back and go, ah, crazy like a fox. <laughs> crazy like a ah, fox, yeah. This makes Prince all coming together now. This makes perfect sense to me. That's insane. But, but like, like, well, to and your to point, extend it, Peter, but to ahead. extend it, the idea is so Donald Trump is this crazy, unpredictable guy, and then you have people like uh, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, or or Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, who are kind of more reasonable, and it's this bad cop, good cop dynamic that uh, that this theory goes that they're trying to to use on North Korea. So that's one. So that's one theory of the case. Uh, okay. Right? And right. let's maybe step back because the the question of what motivates North Korea is actually critically important because North Korea, Kim Jong-un, the regime of Kim Jong-un, uh, sees two different threats to its existence, right, to its regime. And remember, it doesn't care about the people of North Korea, the country of North Korea, or improving the livelihood of that nation. It really cares about protecting the North Korea, the Kim Jong-un family, and also the elites in North Korea, who, by the way, in the last couple of years have been doing very, very well. And he sees uh, this leader threats on two different fronts. One is the external threat from the United States and the, the global coalition uh, that has really boxed North Korea in. That's threat number one, the external threat. 
The other threat is an internal threat from his own people. Now, he has, over the years, basically killed any real opposition to his power. And he has bought off the generals uh, and other key figures in North Korea who wouldn't challenge him. And they're happy. Why are they happy? Because they have access to luxury goods. They can send their kids to certain foreign schools. They have the Internet. They have, you know, American products like Coca-Cola. So they're doing okay. They have fancy apartments. The regular people aren't, but the elite over the last couple of years has actually been doing quite well. And so the Kim Jong-un regime uh, has been able to to remain in power. Uh, and the reason why that's the case, the reason why there's no internal threat to his power from the elite, the reason why they have been pacified is because of China. 80% of all of the traffic that goes into North Korea uh, comes from China. And there are very rich Chinese businessmen and women, maybe, who uh, make a lot of money uh, or make some amount of money uh, uh, doing business with North Korea and ensuring uh, that the North Korean regime remains stable. Because from the interest of the Chinese, what they would ultimately want is to keep the regime in power because they're afraid if the regime falls, you'll have all these refugees coming into China and it would destabilize China. So they would want to see the regime in power, but without nuclear weapons, because <laughs> that too <laughs> is a threat to them. So that for the Chinese is the ideal situation. And they're the ones, and you know, Trump is not wrong to say that they're the ones who really control the keys to a lot of this in terms of whether or not uh, the North Korean elite do well, whether or not the, 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 the powers that be in North Korea really feel the squeeze of the sanctions. And, you know, we've had sanctions in North Korea, like, for years, for years and years and years. And just, what is it, earlier this week, last week, uh, the U.N. Security Council unanimously passed another round of these secondary sanctions, which are supposed to... Um, go after the, the kinds of products uh, that, uh, that the elite care about. Uh, the sanctions have passed, but they have to be enforced. And the people who they have to be enforced by aren't so much the Americans or the French or the Germans. They're the Chinese. So if you're Donald Trump and you're developing a North Korean strategy <clears throat> and you're trying to figure out how to um, get the Chinese to enforce these sanctions, then uh, maybe you need to figure out who's profiting from the sanctions in China and think about how you can squeeze them. But what he's doing now, which is basically just, I don't know, for lack of a better word, just like, like asking... Like loosely threatening China uh, to enforce the sanctions, like isn't really helpful. What you really need 
is to get all of the allies in the region together. So, so these are the Japanese, the South Koreans, the United States, and China, and sit down and get on the same page about what sanctions enforcement looks like and figure out a way and figure out the right incentives to really get China to enforce those sanctions. And then, and Trump, you know, did, did do a little bit of this yesterday. He did open a channel towards negotiation with North Korea to get them back to the table. Um, but for that to happen, you know, you got to have a strong package of sticks and carrots uh, like past administrations have tried to do. Why are you smiling, Peter? No, I'm listening. North Korea is a serious, serious issue. I, no, I know. I was listening to your analogy. Oh, okay. I was uh, the sticks and carrots analogy. It makes it made sense. And you know, past administrations, past administrations have come close. Uh, certainly, in, in 2000, the Clinton administration was very close to to doing a uh, a deal with North Korea, which ultimately fell apart. Of course, back then they were uh, they weren't nearly uh, where they are now in terms of the development of that nuclear program. But I got to say, you know, for things like this, you know, you got, you got, he has a lot of, you know, things like this, you really need a plan. You really need a strategy. You really need a team around you that could come up with um, a way to de-escalate the situation, to deter this guy. And you got to also have diplomats and ambassadors in key posts who can do the work, uh, the actual logistics of the diplomacy that's required uh, to to figure this out. And of course, as we know, you know he's cutting the the budget of the State Department by a third, and the Secretary of State Rex Tillerson's like, "Yes, do it." Rex Tillerson hasn't hired really any deputies. This president doesn't listen to. Issue area expert experts who know about this kind of stuff. He probably doesn't have any kind of uh, attention span to even figure out the complexity of um, of the North Korean situation. So you know, I don't know. We're in some deal of trouble. But I think what keeps me from like going into a bomb shelter is ultimately I think the understanding that the North Korean regime, at the end of the day is uh, fairly rational in the sense that they want to remain in power. And uh, they do understand, hopefully, on some level, that um, any kind of uh, military act on their part, whether it be with conventional weapons that they've lined up pointing at South Korea, or certainly anything further, uh, is going to be met with absolute destruction and an absolute end to their regime. And in fact, that's the dynamic that's kept this situation from falling apart uh, for as long as it has since the since the Korean War. You know, I hear you uh, say that, and I'm not saying that you're saying this, but I think that a lot of Trump supporters sort of uh, take that same sentiment, right? And, 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 and they use it to a different degree than you yeah. do, but they're saying... You know, for far too long, it's the other box, the one by your right. Oh, thank you. For far too long, <laughs> pull back the curtain, folks. Uh, for far too long, countries have said and done things and they've gotten away with it, right? Like we point to Syria and what Obama did with the the red line, right? And 
we've talked a lot about how Syria and what Obama did and, and what Obama didn't do in Syria is one of the greatest failings of the Obama administration. I really think it was a mess. But to your point of uh, saying something and knowing that it will happen, right? Like the North Koreans know that if they were to do something, Donald Trump will will drop a a rain of hellfire on them, right? I believe I believe that. And I believe what, that, it's, and it's, I believe North Korea believes that. But the but the point is, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the the big issue here is. Uh, North Korea will probably, I think, at the end of the day, back down from all of this, if I'm just guessing. But there are plenty of places who won't. You know what I mean? Like, if we get into another type of spat like this where it's just a bunch of, uh, you know, de-measuring between children, uh, someone's going to go even farther. You know, I think if if you ask the base about what Trump is doing, I think they will tell you that Obama, especially when it comes to North Korea, Syria, spent a lot of time telling the world what he wouldn't do. Right. Trump is taking a very different approach, and he's telling the world what he will do. And I think they see that as um, a real point of strength, and which is why you have a lot of Republicans, a lot of foreign, foreign policy establishment Republicans, people like like John McCain and, and um, Bob Corker and others are like not exactly thrilled about, you know, Trump's statements and uh, have been critical of his this kind of rhetorical crazy approach that he's taken. Um, but they're also not exactly like running for the hills because politically, politically, this this plays fairly well. Uh, we're going to get into North Korea with our next guest uh, in f- in far greater detail. But I just also want to note that in his uh, crazy vacation presser yesterday, Donald Trump thanked, that's right, he thanked Putin, Vladimir Putin, uh, president of the former homeland, to uh, thank him for kicking out American diplomats out of uh, the embassies there in Russia. Uh, he said, and I don't know if we, we probably don't have time to play the audio now, but he said that America will now save more on payroll because there's going to be some 755 fewer American diplomats in Russia. You Thank know, you, Putin. For a guy that's so negative and says only negative, nasty things, he really is an optimist when it comes to Putin. <laughs> He's so optimistic. Like, he will always find he, the bright spot that's right. in the Russia, in, a, in any type of Russian news. Like, it, He's anything very glass else, half full on Putin. Literally anything else. Yeah. He will find the bleakest <laughs> outcome that he possibly can. But Russia, they did us a favor. Folks, I, this is a wonderful thing. Yeah. No, that's that's... That's very much. That's very true. Uh, we did uh, a list. Uh, if you go to uh, on Twitter, my my Twitter handle at Igor Volsky or uh, at Cap Action, we did a running GIF of all of the people Trump has been tougher on than Putin, and this includes like uh, I don't know Jeff Sessions, the American intelligence community, uh, you know the Megyn Kelly. The list is is very, very long, but you're absolutely right. He will not say a dirty word about Vladimir Putin. Ever the optimist on Vladimir Putin. Everything else, forget it. 755 uh, approximately diplomats uh, are going to go bye-bye as a result of Putin. Trump is excited about it. I was curious, Peter, 
what are the national security implications of this? Like if we decrease our footprint in Russia, will that what will that do to our um, knowledge about what's going on in that country? What will that do uh, to American citizens who are living in Russia? By the way, would not recommend it. But American citizens who are living <laughs> in Russia, uh, will they be? Uh, will they have trouble getting services from the embassy? Um, will uh, will we? Will there be um, efforts to cut back on monitor, monitoring things like arms agreements that we have uh, set up with Russia? Uh, and you know, depending on who these people are, and uh, it seems like a lot of them are actually Russians who work for the uh, American embassy. Uh, a lot of those things, you know, could be in jeopardy. And it's just bizarre to me that at a time when Russian-American relations are at an all-time low, uh, that you would want to have less people watching what the Russian government is doing rather than more. That, to me, is, is strange. And the other strange thing about this is Donald Trump—try to follow me here—Donald Trump— praised Putin for retaliating against the sanctions that Donald Trump signed into law reluctantly after Trump hacked our election. I and mean, he was back to do that's a corner. The that's full the only way context. he got it done, yeah. Yeah, that's the full context here, that he signs sanctions that Congress almost unanimously passes with, like, a signing statement and, all you know— all these concerns about it, and then praise the guy he's sanctioning for, you know, for being tough, <laughs> for being tough uh, against the law that he signed. And it's really like crazy and remarkable. And, you know, I mean, you saw those articles right after this, the State Department uh, folks, some of them went on background and were shocked, <laughs> dismayed that an American president uh, would do something like this. But, you know, Peter, the this, you know, we've we've been talking about this for as long as Donald Trump has been the has been on the political scene. The stuff this guy gets away with in saying is unbelievable. And the way that it has now been normalized, that him saying something like that and praising Putin uh, and, you know, from attacking our intelligence community early on when he was first inaugurated to now praising Putin and we just kind of shrug about it. I love think it's I, no big deal. I, I love the people who these days say like he'll do something crazy. They just go and we know this is what Donald Trump does. Yeah, This is Donald being this Donald. This is his style. This is what yeah. he does. And it's like, OK, fair. It's also things that a maniac does. Right. It's also things that like someone who is completely incompetent at their job does. Right? Like, blame everybody else, be a loud mouth that doesn't know what they're talking about. Like, yeah, those are things that incompetent human beings also do. It's yeah. also what he does. Yeah. I mean, the question is, is can we come back from this? Like, have the standards in American politics uh, fall into a point where, you know, this is this is that this kind of stuff doesn't shock us anymore? Or maybe it's just a special exemption for Donald Trump. Maybe it's Donald Trump 
who gets away with everything. I have to interrupt because we have a tweet from the president. He literally just tweeted. Oh, breaking news. Uh, a little bit of breaking news. This will set up our uh, conversation with uh, the Plowshares Fund uh, nicely. Next, Donald Trump tweeting, military solutions are now fully in place, locked and loaded, should North Korea act unwisely. Hopefully, Kim Jong-un will find another path. Yeah. Well, military solutions. So he says we are locked and loaded, ready to go to fire on North Korea. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I think that's like always been the case that we've always been ready to uh, to take military action. Do we really need to be putting that out there on a Friday morning as president? Oy vey. Oy vey. Just shut up and play golf. That's all I want him to do. Just shut up and go play golf. (laughs) Go on your vacation and quit (laughs) tweeting about war. In your silly white suit. More North Korea uh, after this. We'll really dig into this issue and figure out how to de-escalate the situation. What should we do? I'm Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press this Friday, August 11th. Stay right there. This is the Bill Press Show. That's right. The Bill Press Show this Friday, August 11th, 2017. Really, I'm calling it the uh, pre-vacation show. Uh, because I'm going on vacation right after this, and so is our next guest, uh, Tom <laughs> Kalina. He's the policy director for the Plowshares Fund uh, on Twitter at Plow under dash shares. Tom, do you not have your own Twitter handle? Tom at Tom Kalina. Tom Kalina, Peter at Tom Kalina, <laughs> trying to 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 deprive him be, of Twitter followers. How could I be a self-respecting analyst? Right, you couldn't. You couldn't. Come on. You couldn't. Yeah. Yes. Well, good. I'm glad. Hey, I'm, I'm a company man, okay? That's all <laughs> We believe in individuality of plowshares. <laughs> I think I the thing it. we want you to like a little closer to the microphone, right? Is that what is that what you guys are doing? Should get, maybe should, move should your I, chair a little bit closer. We there we go. Now I everybody. Will, I will just eat the microphone. Eat the microphone. Eat the microphone. All That's right. the, the rule the rule of the of the radio game. Gotcha. So, Tom, you uh, must be a little busy these days. We're a little busy. Uh, first, let's kind of back up and talk about the the North Korean uh, conflict in terms of how did we get here? Do we have to? Do we please, really have to? All right, please, all right. and why <laughs> why have successive uh, administrations failed to solve this problem? All right, there's a great podcast that I just discovered recently, uh, the New York Times podcast, The Daily. Yes, I heard it yesterday. All right, so you yes, heard the one with, with Bill, uh, Perry? Bill Perry? Bill Perry, that's, so that's right. Good outline of the 2000. Maybe we can start there. So we'll start there, yeah. but people should listen to, I mean, you could listen to me and listen to us, but go also listen to Bill Perry on The Daily yesterday podcast. Yes. That's great. He was asked the same question. He's the guy that knows. He was the guy that for Bill Clinton uh, led the Pentagon. Uh, and then led efforts to negotiate with North Korea um, in 1999 to 2000. So what? So uh, he was in retirement. Uh, he was Secretary of Defense Secretary in '94. In '94, retired and then came back as a special envoy. That's right. So in ni- at the very end of Bill Clinton's term. We that's right. That's yes. right. So this was the best last chance to achieve diplomacy with North Korea, and we sort of let the cat out of the bag. But basically what happened is that in 1994, uh, North Korea starts cheating on the Nonproliferation Treaty, starts producing plutonium that could be used for a bomb. We get an agreement in 94 uh, called the Agreed Framework. It freezes North Korea's nuclear program, okay? Now, a lot of people lambast that agreement as a failure. It bought us eight years. We had eight years of a frozen North Korean nuclear program. Uh, We would be in a much worse situation right now if we hadn't had that deal. Okay, now, but that wasn't the whole story because it didn't deal with the missile program. 
So at the end of the Clinton administration, Perry is brought back in to try to negotiate a broader, more comprehensive deal that deals both with nuclear and missile. They do a lot of back and forth stuff. He travels to he North Korea. He goes to North Korea. A North Korean envoy comes here, meets with uh, Secretary of State. Uh, the president is all ready to go to North Korea for a summit to sew this up. And we get the 2000 election. <laughs> okay. And then we get President Bush who Don't talks remind about- us. Too, still too I know, soon. I know, I know, I <laughs> know. Uh, and then we get, and then we get, and then we get North Korea as part of the axis of evil, and then we get the Iraq War, and things go south. Now, let's maybe dissect a little bit of that deal. What that deal looks like, or looked like, and because I think it's instructive, uh, and, and a good look at what motivates the North Korean regime, right. and maybe a blueprint for how we can resolve this now. Even though now we're in a very different place because they actually have these nuclear weapons That's right. that they didn't have back in That's 2000. Right. So, how was it structured? Why was North Korea ready to come to the table in 2000? So, I think the important thing to realize is that the reason North Korea has nuclear weapons is because they're concerned about an attack from the United States. Right. Their whole point of nuclear weapons is to guarantee their security so that the United States does not attack. If you could replace that fear with some sort of security, some sort of security guarantee that says we, the United States, will not attack you. Don't worry about it. Then the question is, does North Korea still need its nuclear program? And the North has been willing to trade its nuclear program in the past. Now, I'm not saying today. We don't know today. In the past, they were willing to trade their nuclear program for security guarantees that they would not be attacked and for economic assistance to help their country. Look, this is a poor country. This is a country that is not doing well. The only part of this country that's doing well is the leading, is the ruling regime, the Kim dynasty. They're doing fine. The rest of the country is it's in really in a bad way. And, and it's been clear that the regime is willing to let its people starve to guarantee the security of the regime. But if they could do both, they would. They would rather have security and have economic progress, and we need to give them a way to get that. Now, we had eight years of the Obama administration. Why didn't Obama deal with this? So Obama was dealing with other things. We wish, <laughs> we wish Obama had done more. Obama had a policy called strategic patience. It was way too patient, and it was not strategic <laughs> enough. Um, Obama should have done more. Obama made some progress in trying to push them uh, on, on constraining the missile program. But Obama took his eye off the ball and wasn't willing to commit the political resources required I to mean, get the job I mean, all I remember done. is John Podesta going to North Korea under Obama. Who did he rescue? He, they brought back a hostage or something? Is that what I happened? I don't remember, but something yes. Something like that. Yes. I mean, okay. I, think, I think Obama's energies were, were focused on the Iran deal which I have to applaud the Iran deal as a great achievement. Uh, and I have to say here, if Trump were to trash the Iran deal, as he says he's going to do, why North Korea would ever negotiate with us uh, is beyond me. I mean, it, those, yeah. those two things just don't square. But no, the Obama administration didn't do enough on this issue. Uh, the Bush administration didn't do enough on this issue. So basically, we had an opportunity right after the Clinton administration uh, we lost it, and we never got it back. Okay, so I want to go. I'm going to want to go back to the Iran deal because I'm wondering if it provides some kind of framework yeah. for getting a North Korea deal. But let's just leave that for a second, um, and let me ask you about the sanctions regime that has sure. been 
uh, placed on North Korea for like decades or something. There have been all these sanctions, Mm -hmm. a decade, Mm -hmm. all of these sanctions against them. Just this week or or last week, uh, there was a unanimous uh, Security Council resolution passed additional sanctions, what, these secondary sanctions. Why have the sanctions failed to prevent North Korea from obtaining the materials necessary to Mm -hmm. make this kind of weapon? And why have they failed to uh, go after the lifestyles of the uh, Kim uh, family and their supporters and kind of crawl back at those? So the thing to realize about sanctions is that there's an inverse relationship between the more we sanction North Korea and the worse their nuclear program gets. The more we sanction them, the further they go on their nuclear program. The history on this does not lend you to think that sanctions are going to be effective. And the reason for that is North Korea uh, is a tit-for-tat, up-the-ante, up-the-pressure regime. Every time the international community does something, like put on sanctions, they respond not by restraining their program, but by going further ahead. So every time sanctions are put on, the North Korea pushes ahead. So we're going to, and we've seen that now as well. Uh, You know, sanctions are put on and the threats go up. The reason for that is, as I said, North Korea is willing to let its people starve to guarantee its security. They are the most sanctioned country in the world. They don't really have an economy to speak of. So it's very difficult to sanction a country that has literally zero economic connections to the world, except through China. And, and here's China, the crux, yes. okay? And here China, to China. <laughs> China could turn off the switch and cut off, I think, 90% of North Korea's trade is with China. So China's the key. China does not want a failed state on its border. If North Korea fails, and if China cut off all trade with North Korea, North Korea would, would fail as a functioning state. If North Korea fails, there would be civil war. There would be mass migration of refugees from North Korea into China. Uh, potentially, you could have a U.S. Uh, allied state or, or regime moving into North Korea. Uh-oh. All of those things are disaster for China. Worse than China does not want North Korea to have nuclear weapons and does not want China to create the kind of problem that it's got right now. But that's not as bad as having this kind of a regime crisis in North Korea. So China ideally wants to see Kim remain in power but without nuclear capability. Right. So here is the nub of an agreement between all sides. Right? Let's hash it out right now. Okay. Let's, we'll, let's we'll do, it do it right it. now. Let's do it. So the United States and China, neither one wants nuclear weapons in North Korea. Right? China does not want the regime to collapse in North Korea. North Korea does not want its regime to collapse <laughs> in North Korea. Okay? So if all three could say, look, let's reduce the nuclear stuff, but you can stay... We're not going to mess with you. That's the security assurance you were talking about earlier. So so you get security assurances from the United States and China that China will keep trade going. And so that props up the North Korean regime. But in exchange, North Korea has to scale back its nuclear program. That is the nub of the deal that worked in the past and could work going forward. But the price is getting higher. Every time North Korea makes progress on testing missiles, testing nuclear weapons, they have more to lose. They have more to give up, and the price goes up to get it. So time is not on our side. We need to get on with this because the North is moving ahead. So if there is this common ground as as you lay it out, why haven't 
we've been able to accomplish this before. I mean, if everyone believes that at the end of the day, North Korea should not have nuclear weapons, and certainly the United States doesn't appear to me to tremendously care about regime change in North Korea. So, why? I mean, you make it sound simple, and I guess I'm <laughs> yeah, it's asking not simple. <laughs> well, I think it get, it gets caught up in politics, right? I mean, President Bush decided to demonize the North, and once you demonize a country, it's harder to acquiesce to their continued existence, right? You have to kind of choose: Are you out for regime change? Or are you out for re- reducing the nuclear And Trump is like danger? on both sides of it. And Trump is still playing this like this is a military problem. I mean, he doubled down on his threats against North Korea, but he's he's doubling down on a bad hand. I mean, pushing up the pressure is not the way to solve this. We need to get back to talks and negotiations. There is no military solution to this. I mean, General Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, is pretty clear and has been distancing himself from President Trump's words. Uh, uh, Secretary Mattis is saying any military action here would be catastrophic. You know, there's 25 million good reasons why we can't use military (laughs) force against the North. And that's because there's 25 million people in Seoul, which is an hour's drive from the North. I mean, they can hit the, the North can hit the South and Seoul with artillery. They don't even need the nuclear weapons and American troops there as well. And there's there's twenty to thirty thousand American troops. So I mean, this is no joke. You know, we can't just bluster. Well, I want to we could bluster our way into a, a catastrophe, which is what we need to avoid. I want to play a quick clip because we didn't get a chance to play this earlier, Igor from uh, General Mattis, because he he did sort of highlight that when he's commenting on this, he's commenting it from the perspective of my job is to provide a military option. But he does go on to sort of back up your point there. My portfolio, my mission, my responsibility is to have military options should they be needed. However, right now, Secretary Tillerson, Ambassador Haley, you can see the American effort is diplomatically led. It has diplomatic traction. It is gaining diplomatic results. So at least you have some people in the Trump administration opening the door for some kind of diplomacy, some kind of negotiations. It seems like we need to have that channel, at least the possibility of that channel Mm -hmm. on the table, along with, you know, the military might that the president keeps talking about. Do we have these kinds of negotiations with North Korea with preconditions? What, If so, what kind of preconditions do we set to any kind of negotiation? I don't think we can have preconditions. I think we just have to sit down with them and begin to talk. Things are so bad that if you layer preconditions on things, you're not going to get anywhere. Uh, and in fact, Secretary Tillerson, although he says he's open to talks, kind of, in my opinion, framed it the wrong way by saying, we'll talk if North Korea, you stop your missile testing. But he didn't put a time frame on that, right? How long do they have to stop their missile testing? That's not the way to do it. I think you have to sort of get a a conversation going. And the first thing they need to talk about is how to defuse the crisis, right? Because there's a real danger right now that we're going to stumble into war that neither side wants. And so there's an agenda right there. Neither side wants to stumble into war by mistake. That's a good place to start. Okay. So we both agree on that. How do we make sure that doesn't happen? Okay. So you have to open a dialogue. 
You Maybe you need a, a crisis hotline so you can pick up the phone and call each other and say, hey, did you really mean to say you're about to attack us or not? Because we need to know that because we don't want to fall into war. Mm-hmm. Once you get that done, then you can talk about, you know, how do we freeze what the North is doing? What do they want in exchange? And then you can hopefully move on to an agreement. So the Iran deal, which uh, the Obama administration reached uh, 2015, 2014, yeah, two years 20, ago, two two years ago, ago. now, uh, that the Trump administration keeps signing off on, uh, yeah, despite yeah, rhetorically yeah. trashing it. And, and Although now they're saying they're not going to sign off on it the next Oh, uh, they're going to stop? Okay. Right. Um, and you make, you make the smart point that what kind of message does that send to the North? Right. Uh, Iran, of course, a bit of a different situation since they don't yet have nuclear weapons. Right. North Korea has these weapons we now know. Uh, that effort, that Iranian effort, was done um, with the coalition of much of the world, mm-hmm. uh, of, of coming together with this framework of putting forth um, a tough inspection regime to make sure Iran uh, wasn't cheating like North Korea was cheating uh, back in the 90s. You, you mentioned that framework. So it appears that there are some similarities in the sense that most nations of the world agree that the North Korean threat is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Clearly, they've been happy to impose a sanctions regime. So to what degree is our experience with the Iran deal and the Iran negotiations a possible blueprint for how we can bring the world together and solve the North Korean crisis? Great question. And there's definitely some parallels, although there it only goes so far. I mean, as you're right, I mean, North Korea has nuclear weapons now. Uh, Iran does not. So it just makes the problem much harder. But there's a couple of things to point out. One is is the Iran conversation happened quietly. It started very quietly. It didn't happen on the front pages. It didn't happen through press releases. It happened quietly off in a third country, sort of establishing that there would be a basis to talk. And so we need to start the North Korean conversation quietly. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it can't happen with this kind of bluster uh, and bombastic language that we're seeing from both language, both leaders. So it sounds like you're saying the president should send uh, Jared Kushner to North Korea. Somebody. That's what I'm hearing. Somebody. I don't know. I, I won't say exactly who it should be. I don't know if, if Jared is the right guy. But somebody needs to go quietly uh, and talk. It could be, um, you know, someone who's not in the administration, you know, similar to uh, to President Clinton sending Bill Perry, you know, someone who's out of office but is well-respected by all sides. I think that's what we need. But the other lesson here is that it won't be a once it won't be a one-step process, right? In the North in the Iran situation, you had an initial agreement that basically froze things so that while talking goes on, you know that the other side isn't making progress because if we're talking and North Korea is still testing weapons and missiles, that's no basis for a conversation. We can't be letting them stall uh, and keep their program going. So the first agreement has to be freeze things while we talk. Now, uh, the president, while threatening nuclear war, uh, also yesterday in his press conference did suggest that his big priority and a big threat that he thinks faces the world, and by the way, this is where you and the president have a lot of common ground, (laughs) is nuclear weapons. Now, here he is um, in New Jersey and has took took a break from the golfing to talk to reporters. Uh, He says, you know, Obama thought that global warming was the biggest threat in the world. I think it's nuclear weapons. I would like to denuke the world. I know that President Obama said global warming is the biggest threat. I totally disagree. I say that 
It's a simple one. Nuclear is our greatest threat. It's a simple one. We wish it was so simple. Denuking so the world. <laughs> so right. let's maybe zoom out and talk about uh, kind of the threat of nuclear weapons, not just in North Korea, in the world more broadly. What are the other uh, kind of nuclear uh, inflection points, hotspots that keep you up at night? Well, uh, I think if I were President Trump right now, and I'm glad I'm not, but if I were President Trump, I would not want to start a crisis in Iran uh, at the same time I have one going on with North Korea. So again, back to this point of sort of pulling out of the Iran deal makes very little sense from an administration perspective when you have the North Korean situation going on. Uh, why you would want two crises on two fronts at the same time uh, is really beyond me. Um, but there are other things going on as well. I mean, the United States and Russia need to figure out what they're going to do uh, going forward about nuclear stockpiles, because both countries have more weapons than they need, spending more money than they need to maintain these weapons, that they're only there to counteract each other. So if the two sides could get their act together to reduce those forces, we would both be safer, uh, save a ton of money, and and be able to reduce tensions between the two countries. Now, of course, relations between U.S. and Russia are pretty bad right well, now. Well, uh, you know, by some degrees, they you could think they're good. I mean, it really, <laughs> it really uh, yeah. depends how you look at it. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, we need to work on this because um, uh, Congress is responding in ways uh, that are not helpful in terms of the future of U.S.-Russian arms reductions by proposing new types of nuclear weapons, pulling out of existing treaties, uh, and so we need to work on that relationship so it's clear that we, need sh we should be moving that relationship forward, not backward. Uh, so if Congress does things like uh, authorize new types of nuclear weapons to respond to what Russia is doing, simply not helpful. Yeah, so Trump also said, I think it was several days ago, that we were either modernizing our nuclear fleet or that our nuclear weapons were the best of the, in the world. I mean, that also sounded like moving so, in the other direction. President Trump does not often choose his words carefully enough. Uh, he often says things that are not quite true. That's a very controversial statement. Uh, I know, I know. That I know. you just made. So um, so in response to all of the tensions with North Korea, uh, he decides to say that the first thing he did as president was order the right. modernization uh, of U.S. Uh, forces. It's not true on a couple of levels. It wasn't the first thing he did, first of all. And this was a program that was begun under the Obama administration, uh, so he's sort of adopting it in that sense. Um, and But indeed, it is Trump's program now because he's put money into it. Um, and but, how much money are we talking about? Like, how much money are we spending on nuclear weapons? We're going to be spending a trillion dollars oh. over 30 years hmm. to modernize and maintain the okay. arsenal. Yeah, yeah. Right. But the point being that that that... None of it is hap has happened. I mean, it's happening, but there's no results that you could point to that have happened yet. It's a very it's a long term program. So now, what is technically is that? Are you like, is it? Are you like maintaining the weapons? Are you creating new weapons? Um, what are you doing to the weapons? Both. Both. Okay. So if Cleaning you if, if, if you, <laughs> if you shining take, them. If you take a step back, right? So the Cold War ended 25 years ago. All right, and then we started to reduce forces. Uh, first under President Reagan and then and then beyond. But we never quite finished the job. We still have 5,000 weapons each, the United States and Russia, thereabouts. And so in the intervening years, these things get older. And so you, at some point you have a choice. Do you retire it 
or do you build a new one and replace it? So that's where we are right now. Rather than retiring this stuff when we had the chance, we dawdled. Time went on like 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> and now the choice is do you retire it or replace it? And, and so what the Obama administration decided to do, unfortunately, was to establish a trillion-dollar program to replace pretty much everything we have. So that's new submarines uh, to carry missiles, uh, new ground-based missiles, new bombers with new weapons on them, uh, the whole uh. thing. And so the question is, how much of this stuff do we really need? And the price is going up. So we think we can get by with a lot less than, than the current plan. Tom Kalina, he's the policy director for the Plowshares Fund. Tom, thank you so much. Have a great vacation in New Hampshire. It was my pleasure, and you have a great vacation, too. We'll be back. This is The Bill Press Show. It's The Bill Press Show this Friday, August 11th, 2017. I'm Igor Volsky, uh, filling in for Bill Press. Uh, I'm from the Center for, American, Center for American Progress Action Fund and also of the Thinking Cap podcast. Good morning, good morning. I'm trying something a little different this morning. I'm also periscoping this show. I've been periscoping it the whole time. So you see the show, you see behind the scenes of the show. Uh, so if you, if I don't know if people are, you know, tell me if you like it. And by the way, on Periscope, share it, share it, share it. It's how we get more people um, to watch the Periscope. But lots of things to talk about today. A little weekend review of of everything we've seen from from this administration and the political world. Lots to get to, including the future of Mitch McConnell and President Obama questioning, that's right, questioning whether or not the Senate Majority Leader should remain as Senate Majority Leader. All that and more, but first... This is the Full Court Press. All right, just a couple of other stories making news. If you live in Kansas. I don't live in Kansas. I wasn't talking to you. I was talking to everyone. But if you you are someone who lives in Kansas, you have a new gubernatorial candidate because Sam Brownback is leaving the governorship. And so they are having to have, they're going to find a new governor. And because Kansas has pretty loose rules on who can run for governor, there is a new candidate. His name is Jimmy Bergeson. Oh. He is a high school student from Wichita. He's 16 years old. I love that. And no, I hate this. Young people getting involved in politics, running for office. Igor, this is tremendous. You don't like this. I love it. Jimmy, like Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. Do you know how I many... I endorse s- Jimmy. You just endorsed a gubernatorial <laughs> candidate, Igor. He's 16. That's great. I was 16. I was into politics. I mean, I probably wouldn't run for something. I think it's great that he's running. Why are you against this? I was 16, and I was into politics, and I was also a complete moron. I mean, something never changed. You're 16. What does he know about, I mean, running things? Uh, Do you know who, have you seen who our president is now? I mean, please. Okay, fair point. Fair point. I will say he is running as a Democrat. He says that uh, Sam Brownback and Donald Trump have, uh, devolved the level of politics Back in this check, country. true. True, so he feels like he can make it better because he's 16. Good luck, I guess. <laughs> it, now, it, the Bank of England, right, they, are, they, they make currency over there, duh, and they have their versions of the dollar bills, right, the paper money. Well, here's the thing. They make these uh, bills using animal fat. They use animal uh. by- by- byproduct. Now, they say that it's uh, 
beef tallow that they use in these things to help make the bills. But there's been a big outcry saying we can make these things with plastics or things other than animals that we don't have to use animal byproducts in our money. Well, yesterday, the Bank of England said that they are going to stick with their animal product yeah. money. They're not going to get rid of it. They're not going to try any other alternatives. They're going to stick with it. So vegetarians and vegans and, and animal rights activists said that that's a bad move, but they said it's purely based on money. It costs a lot more for them to uh, to uh, make these. Uh, these Ugh, the vegans must be so upset. Isn't that terrible? Ugh. And it's a sad day if you are a Nazi. We say (laughs) farewell to Jeffrey Lord. Jeffrey Lord from CNN has been let go because he went on Twitter yesterday and jokingly, air quotes, jokingly, haha, said Sieg Heil when talking uh, to a Twitter user. (sighs) Always, a Nazi joke just always cracks me up. I laugh and laugh and laugh. He says that he was mocking Nazis and fascists, but considering his track record where he has said things uh, very in line with (laughs) Nazis and fascists, uh, it doesn't really read as a joke. Now, of all the things that he said in the past that were horrible, it is curious that a bad joke is what got him fired from CNN. I think this is the least egregious thing that he's done. It's still bad, but bye-bye. Bye, Jeffy. We will not miss you. And uh, like I said, it's a bad day for Nazis everywhere. is the Bill Press Show. That's right. Bill Press Show this Friday, August 11th, 2017. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Hour 2 of the Bill Press Show. I'm Igor Volsky, by the way. Uh, I host a podcast called Thinking Cap. It's a weekly show that breaks down the issues and voices of the resistance, and I invite you to download it on iTunes, on Google Play, on Stitcher, on wherever it is you get your podcasts. Give it a listen, rate it, review it. Let me know what you think. I'd love to hear from you. I'm also, by the way, periscoping this show for the first time. Uh, I want to see how that goes. If folks want to see it, uh, you know, I'll just keep it on throughout. So during breaks, you'll see me like complaining about stuff and and all that uh, so hope you you enjoy it there um, now we got a we got a busy show here uh, because even though the president is on vacation uh, he hasn't slowed down and he held a wide-ranging press conference yesterday uh, you know took a second to get out of those ugly golf clothes into a suit and took a whole bunch of questions from the press uh, one of which focused on Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell now a little background on Mr. McConnell Yes, he failed to uh, repeal and replace Obamacare, for which we are thankful for that failure. Thank you, Susan Collins. Thank you, Lisa Murkowski. Thank you, John McCain. Painful to say, kind of, but it does feel like the legislative repeal effort is dead. So there's that. 
But can we talk about that for a second? Okay, I, I know you're going somewhere with yes, this. I hate yes, to interrupt yes. and 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 throw you off. Track. I have such a flow. Do you do you really think that it's that that the legislative effort is dead? I'm not, and I'm not saying that I think you're wrong. I'm just curious. I so I think that for now at least the effort to do a big repeal of the law as a whole is done. Um, I think they will continue to chip away with to chip away at the law through regulation. Uh, states will try to do different things. Uh, there might be kind of smaller legislative efforts uh, to to do something, but this big promise that they had, and you'll remember for years they used to say we're going to rip the law out, root branch, and whatever that that phrase is. Uh, that I think I hope uh, is is dead. Uh, and, you know, it was up in the air for a long time because it's a promise that Republicans made um, to their base for like seven, eight years. They just kept on saying it. They kept on repeating it. Um, and Mitch McConnell was the man responsible for delivering. And if you talk to people on the Hill, Democrats, Republicans, they'll tell you this guy knows how to get things done. He's not somebody who is a showboat. He's not somebody who hogs a lot of um, the spotlight, but he can cut deals. He can figure out how he needs to tweak a bill just a little bit to get the votes he needs. Now, he wasn't able to do that on health care, clearly. And again, we salute that. Um, but that's because, you know, he had it coming from both sides. He tried to make the bill um, more more conservative in the sense more draconian and take away coverage from people. And you had the, the moderate Republicans really concerned about that. And then he tried to uh, placate the moderate Republicans by giving more money for for states um, that that have expanded Medicaid or have opioid problems. Uh, the conservatives got mad at him. So there was really no clear route, given the slim majority uh, that he has in the Senate, for him to do this. It was like just the nature of the problem, the nature of the law. And also, of course, because it's very hard to take away coverage from people. It's very hard to take away a benefit that many people have been struggling um, to get for so many years. And I also don't want to underplay the tremendous tremendous advocacy uh, around this country of regular people calling their member of Congress every single day, telling them to vote against this bill, of um, advocates getting arrested, doing sit-ins, showing up at rallies and at protests, organizing their, it's you know one of the most inspiring things I've ever seen is the kind of civic engagement, uh, the kind of real true democracy that we saw around the health care law. Uh, children, uh, people with disabilities really led this fight, became the faces of this fight, telling Americans across the country and telling lawmakers across the country what it actually means to take away coverage, putting a face on who would suffer. So anyway... Because of all that, <laughs> health repeal failed. Yeah. And Donald Trump uh, is a little bit upset. Now, Donald Trump, you got to understand, like, doesn't really care about health care, right? We can all agree that, like, at the end of the day, when you uh, maybe write down the things that, like, Donald Trump is really passionate about, health care, probably not at the top of that list.
I imagine. When you say he, when you say he doesn't care about it, I also think we should point out he doesn't understand. Oh, he definitely does not understand how healthcare works. I mean, basic healthcare, you know, basic healthcare concepts, basic ideas about the healthcare market. I mean, this man has no idea at all. So he doesn't really care about healthcare. He had no healthcare plan. He had no healthcare vision. He probably really cares about tax reform. It's what they're going to try to do next. It's going to be the next battle. We should we should really talk about that and think about what that looks like. But here he is, yesterday, going after Mitch McConnell. He's asked at his golf course in New Jersey whether or not he thinks Mitch McConnell should resign. If he doesn't get repeal and replace done, and if he doesn't get taxes done, meaning cuts and reform, and if he doesn't get a very easy one to get done infrastructure, if he doesn't get them done, then you can ask me that question. Yeah, if he doesn't get so that's a yes, by my the way. agenda through, Mitch McConnell should resign. That's the message uh, from the president. The question, of course, is, well, you know, who's going to take over and who's going to be better? And that's very, they have nobody better. very this unclear. Is, this is why Trump is so bad is he doesn't get that Mitch McConnell could very well be his biggest and best ally. And I know that a lot of people hate the whole establishment and Mitch McConnell is part of it and all that, but Mitch McConnell not only helped get Trump elected, but he delivered him, hand-delivered him, his Supreme Court pick. That's he, been the biggest accomplishment so far. The biggest and it wasn't an accomplishment, accomplishment of Donald Trump by any no, stretch. It, it was the work of, of Mitch McConnell. Now, the politics of this to me are very interesting because you already have campaigns across the country, Republican primary campaigns across the country, who are painting Mitch McConnell as part of this D.C. swamp, as part of the establishment. And clearly, Trump sees a strategy of distancing himself from kind of business in D.C. as usual, from career politicians in D.C. and trying to reframe himself as the kind of economic populist candidate that he ran as uh, in 2016. So this I see as part of an electoral strategy that Trump is already pursuing of putting distance between himself and Republicans in Washington, D.C. And the question is, as Republicans lose faith in this president, as this president fails to accomplish the kind of big ideas that he campaigned on. So these are, of course, repeal and replace health care. This is build the wall. Uh, this is tax reform. All of those things. He needs congressional Republicans uh, to to back and to support. And I don't know if bashing them is the right way to get there. But will his base, this is going to be the key question or one of the key questions as we head into the, the midterm elections, will the, and of course then the presidential, will the Republican base stick with Donald Trump if Donald Trump fails to deliver on his key initiatives? If he doesn't notch any big legislative accomplishments, what happens? Does the base shrink 
does um what happens we don't know now um huh. you know he uh is very good at deflecting blame at blaming other people for his problems so maybe he'll adopt a strategy of i promised all of this and the dc insiders and the swamp in dc fought me every day and prevented me from from doing what i promised you they're against you i am for you right that's going to be like the basic tenet of his campaign and the decision that a lot of these republican senators and Congress people are going to have to make as they uh, cruise towards their own election fights in just a couple of months now, as those are going to be gearing up, is do they stand with the president and try to pass his agenda, particularly in states that Trump won? And in states like, for instance, you know, West Virginia is an example where his approval rating is like kind of insane still. Places like, I think, Louisiana as well, it's pretty high. Do they stick with Trump and try to push through his agenda to show that, you know, Republicans in power can get things done? Or do they break from Trump? Jeff Flake, senator from Arizona, probably one of the most vulnerable Republican senators who's up in this cycle, uh, wrote a book. He, I mean, he's done the, the, the cable tours You've heard of this book, Conscience of a Conservative, or some garbage like that. He yawn. writes this book. Yeah. Biggest yawn I could possibly give you for Jeff Flake standing up to Trump. Jeff Flake, I mean, the, criti- the criticism Je- Jeff Flake has for Trump is something like, uh, you know, uh, he's like his rhetoric is a little crazy. He's kind of crazy. I don't like him. I mean, he voted for with Trump 90 to 95% of the time. He voted to take away health care from 23 million people, but, you know, he has a conscious, conscience, apparently, but like, allegedly. He, he, the thing is, he is a solid vote for Trump, for everything, like, as you're pointing yeah. out. He's a solid vote for Trump. And yet, because he just spoke out about Trump to sell his books. To sell his books. But because he dared to do it, there's a story now that Trump uh, allies are throwing so much money at Jeff Flake's opponents in Arizona. Yeah. So, and so Donald Trump might lose this solid, solid vote because he is the pettiest politician who ever lived. So Donald Trump has threatened to spend $10 million to unseat Jeff Flake. Of course he won't <laughs> spend a penny. Of course he won't. Of course he won't. Um, but you do have some serious challengers to Flake. You have the Mercer family pouring in $300,000 into a pack to try and defeat Jeff Flake in the primary. Um, so he's not without, you know, there's not without concern for Jeff Flake, but certainly it's a, it's a test case, right? What happens to a Republican who goes against Trump, who um, takes a strong, and Jeff Flake has been there kind of from the beginning. You remember, he didn't go to the convention. He urged for Trump to resign um, when the Access Hollywood tape came out. So, you know, Jeff Flake, I think, could have been a much stronger opponent of, uh, of, of Trump's governing, could have spoken out sooner when Trump began to undermine the democratic norms in this country. 
could have and should have and chose not to. And now that he has a book, of course, he's uh, <laughs> he's trying to sell it and trying to really lead uh, this this anti-Trump what what may be um, an anti-Trump uh, 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 you know gather anti-Trump voices within the Republican Party, and of course this comes on the heels of reports last week that there's some concern within the Republican establishment that Trump's presidency is no longer viable. That something may happen in the Russia investigation that could lead Trump to uh, resign or be pushed out of office or you know whatever scenario you imagine. And so you already see Republicans gearing up uh, and, uh, and getting ready uh, to step in if something happens to Trump. So Mike Pence, the vice president, hires a seasoned Republican operative to figure out his next steps. You probably have some other Republicans quietly uh, lining up to see how they can uh, calculate their political fortunes if Trump can't run for re-election or if Trump, you know, or if something else happens. And so, you know, we're in an interesting time because on one hand, we're not seeing the kind of um, fierce and strong opposition to what Trump has done to this country politically or to his agenda. You're not seeing the kind of um, kind of uh, mass exodus in the Republican Party from the Trump agenda. But you are beginning to see the very early stages of a possible rebellion. And the key here is going to be how does the base react? What does that hardcore Trump base do? Do they abandon him? Do they stay with him? You know, I saw a crazy poll the other day. Washington, it was in the Washington Post. I don't think it was a Post poll, but written about in the Washington Post that some half of all Republicans, half of all Republicans, a little more than half, would support postponing the 2020 election if Donald Trump asked for it. Half of all Republicans would postpone the election. Can, can I ask you a question really quickly? Because yeah. I saw this going around yesterday yeah. and I read it, and it's obviously pretty jarring, but like, is that something that's ever been done or is possible? I don't know. Like, I, I, mean, I don't want to sound like, it just sounds like something that somebody just concocted and threw out there. Like, yeah, of course it's a crazy idea. No, I don't think he's above doing that. But is that something that's in the realm of possible? I I, I I would imagine that if Trump declared some kind of national emergency, that there's probably some mechanism by which you can postpone elections. I imagine that's possible. I imagine there's some procedure there that's never been used. But, you know, my concern here is that we were in such a divided information world 
where, and you see this reflected in the polls. I mean, you see the fact that um, that Trump voters are on a completely different page when it comes to Russia, for instance. They don't think Putin had anything to do with any of the hacking. They overwhelmingly believe that um, millions of undocumented immigrants voted for Hillary Clinton. They believe that Trump won the popular vote as a result. I mean, we and these are millions of people. These are millions of our fellow Americans who, because they get their information from the ideological news source that fits their persuasion. By the way, I know it's rich coming from me on a progressive radio show. But, you know, we don't make crap up like they do. Because they believe that, you know, Seth Rich leaked the, the, the documents to WikiLeaks or whatever the conspiracy is. And that creates, I think for the really, for the first time, certainly in the modern era of American uh, politics, that creates this kind of bubble around the president that protects him from a true kind of uh, uprising within Republicans that because they're being fed information that specifically fits their worldview of Trump as being the great savior, you know, they're not going to turn against them. And now that he launched this crazy uh, uh, weekly Facebook show or whatever it is about how, how great he is, the real news or whatever whatever it's called, it's going to it's going to get even worse. By the way, did you see Peter the story at, on Vice News that every day, twice a day, yeah. Donald Trump gets a folder put in front of him with good stories about him? The most believable thing I've ever read. It's like remarkable. Like yeah, this no, I is a man. That, I didn't question that story for a moment. Of course he does that. <laughs> This of course is, that happens. I mean, what I mean, not not to like psychoanalyze him, but but what what happened to you as a child that you need reassurance multiple times a day about how great you are? Right? It's like it's like unbelievable. It's unbelievable to me. This is how thin-skinned he is. And this is by the way, we're paying Somebody, the taxpayers, just stop and think about this. The taxpayers of the United States are paying a staffer tens of thousands of dollars to every day clip positive news stories about Donald Trump for Donald Trump to read. We don't have a diplomat for South Korea, but we have somebody pulling good news about Donald Trump. That's the dysfunctional <laughs> that's the dysfunctional the world we live in. Insane. It's of course it's insane. It's completely insane. insane. Good news about you delivered to you. That's not a bad idea, actually, by the way. Like a little, you know, now that I think about it, I mean that'd be nice, you know, to have a little 
little, you know, Igor did a great job hosting the Bill Press show. Uh, look, you know, it's like a nice. I, I don't know why you you're know, hiding some, the fact if that, some that people you put, make me do that when that you host. <laughs> that I have to collect all of the Twitter comments and Facebook posts about how great you are and de- hand deliver them to you. Hand deliver, that's right, by messenger. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you. I, I, that, it's actually where Trump got the idea. As <laughs> he you? heard you did this for me, he's like. One of the many services I provide, Igor. That's right, you know. You know, Peter, he's a producer. He produces things. I produce. And uh, in some cases, in some cases, it's it's happiness to me, for me. So, you know, that's the question ultimately, right? Because it's not just because <laughs> the, happy new, the, the happy news that Trump is getting is the same happy news that large percentages of Republicans are getting, right? They're all... They're literally all like have like these blinders on and that's literally all they see and that's all they want to see. And so it's going to be, a you know, a challenge breaking through to those people and convincing those people of reality, <laughs> of the truth, frankly. Um. And it's going to be, you know, something that candidates who are running uh, for office, new candidates who are hoping to to win in, in deep red states or hoping to peel back some of those voters who who um, who gave Trump a shot are going to have to figure out how do you penetrate the bubble? How do you penetrate the Trump bubble? And is it possible? And it's also, of course, a challenge for Republican leaders who decide to break away from Trump. So people like Jeff Flake have to figure out how to talk to deep red voters about Trump if the only information those deep red voters see about Trump is happy news. How do you convince them otherwise if you're Jeff Flake? I don't know if I have any answer to that. How do you do that? Because as soon as you criticize him, the happy news that you hear tells you that he's a traitor, that he needs to be primaried. I mean, we're talking about North Korea. This feels like North Korea, where they've created an entire, you know, ecosystem where the only thing they hear about is a great Trump is. How do you penetrate that? It's a big, big problem for Republicans. It's a big problem. And Jeff Flake's just the test case. If he loses his primary, well, how many other Republicans will challenge Trump? What happens to the party? All right, we're going to take a quick break. Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press. Friday, August 11th, 2017. Stay with us. This is the Bill Press Show. All right, the Bill Press Show uh, this Friday, August 11th, 2017. I'm Igor Volsky filling in for uh, Bill Press. Joined now by Brian Bender, national security writer and editor for Politico. Brian, uh, we've talked about North Korea. We've prayed on North Korea. We uh, have been freaking out about North Korea all week. The president this morning, clearly, it's also in his mind, wakes up, tweets about North Korea. What does he say? We're locked and loaded. That's the quote. Uh, The military plan is locked and loaded, quote unquote. Uh, If 
North Korea makes any stupid moves effectively. So he's saying if North Korea continues provoking the United States, if they carry out this strike against Guam that they've been threatening to do, the United States will retaliate, is ready to retaliate using military means. Well, you know, it's not clear that he's being very explicit about under what conditions the U.S. would use this locked and loaded military plan. And I think that's what concerns people. Yeah. In the past, the U.S. position publicly has always been that effectively North Korea's nuclear weapons are useless. They could never use them because if they did, it would be the end of North Korea. But that's very different from saying, if you keep threatening us, we're going to come after you. Because that creates this bigger question in the minds of the North Koreans, in the minds of the South Koreans, the Japanese, our allies in the region. What does he mean? Does he mean that the U.S. might launch a preemptive strike? Because obviously, if we did that, um, as everybody's been reporting, you know, there are military options, but they're all bad. Yeah. I mean, none lots of, them of are death, good. lots of destruction. None of them are good. We would probably prevail in the end. I think no one doubts that the U.S. and its allies overmatched the North Korean military many, many times, but at what cost? And so I think that's the real concern here. It's it's not just the tough talking. It's a, it's a message that isn't very clear sort of what he means, under what circumstances would we use military power and what circumstances would we not. I mean, we've, we've never before claimed that we would use our nuclear weapons first, but when he says fire and fury like he did the other day. Now, I've heard wonder. some analysts who say, look, Trump is very unpredictable. The world knows that he can say and do anything at any moment. They expect this from him. And they argue that in the North Korean situation, that could actually be an asset because maybe the regime in North Korea, the Kim regime, that's very concerned about self-preservation, maybe they'll think, oh, goodness, we don't know what this guy will do. Uh, let us, you know, kind of back off. I think there is a group of thought that does think that, yes, if we talk tough, if we make the North Koreans really fear that if they continue down this path that it's going to be the end of their regime, it's going to be the end of this dynasty, then maybe that will force them back to the table. It will force them to say, well, maybe we should talk our way out of this. Um, and I don't, I'm not saying that isn't true, but I think where a lot of people are concerned about the way the president is going about doing this is that you can say one thing in public and something else privately. For example, in public, you could say, like a lot of presidents have before, you know, we are going to defend our interests. We are going to protect our allies. That is our job number one, no matter what, period. And then privately, you could make it clear through back channels, through intermediaries to the North Koreans that we're getting to the end of our rope here. And we're not going to tolerate what you're doing for much longer. You can make those kinds of threats. You can do things behind the scenes. You can move your military forces around to make them understand that we are, like I said, at the end you're of our serious. rope. They were serious. As yeah. opposed to this bellicose public talk that spooks our allies, uh, confuses our allies, potentially spooks the North Koreans, confuses them. Um, but to your point, I mean, I, there's no doubt that there are some people who think nothing else has worked all these years. Why not try this? Maybe talking tough, almost playing them at their own game, which is talking these melodramatic, mm -hmm. bellicose statements. We're going to turn you into a sea of fire, which yeah. the North Koreans have been very good at doing. We'll, we'll make a difference. 
And I guess the other side of the coin is when you make these threats without necessarily backing them up, that you're diminishing the power and the word of the United States. Well, right. I mean, if you take at face value what he said three days ago, the fire and the fury, given that he cribbed that from Harry Truman, who said that in between the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, it's kind of really difficult to live up to that. Yeah. Uh, You'd have to start a nuclear war. you have to start a nuclear war, <laughs> um, which I don't think Donald Trump wants to do. Yeah. I don't think anybody wants that. Um, and, you know, in the end, will the North Koreans do something crazy and just launch a nuclear weapon at the United States? Probably not. I don't think anybody thinks they want to do that because they do want to survive. But if they feel like they are pushed into a corner and that the end is near... Could they be desperate? Brian, let me ask you, is there... So, okay, it's like really clear that the Trump administration doesn't really have a strategy here or it's ducks in a row to conduct any kind of serious uh, effort here. Is there something Congress can do? Is there a role for Congress to play in helping to resolve this issue? I mean, you've seen people like McCain and Corker be, you know, express some frustration with the president's rhetoric, but is there anything they could actually do to help resolve this issue? I'm not really sure there is much Congress can do. I mean, the president is the president. He's the commander in chief. He's the one who can negotiate treaties. Uh, you know, it would be nice for him to appoint an ambassador to South Korea would probably <laughs> use one nice. right that now. Help. That would but, help. you know, but in the end, the president has the authority to deal with these affairs of state. I mean, obviously, Congress controls money. Congress can try to legislate some sort of policy. But when it comes to foreign affairs, I think pre precedent shows the president pretty much has a lock on that. Um, so, it, I mean, at this point, I think Congress is speaking out, trying to figure out what is the policy, how can they maybe affect the policy, whether it's you know, talking to Tillerson, the Secretary of State, Jim Mattis, speaking out as McCain and Corker have done. But but in the end, how we deal with this comes down to President Trump. I, I want to ask you about his other comment, uh, uh, praising Putin yesterday for kicking out American ambassadors. <sighs> Is there national security implications for us to... Uh, to diminish our footprint in Russia at this critical time right now? Well, I think that was clearly the most shocking thing he said yesterday in this impromptu press availability in which he said a lot of provocative things. Um, it's hard to know what to make of that. I mean, on the face of it, it's it's not out of character for Trump to sort of turn something completely around on its face and say, well, maybe this is a good thing because, you know, we had all these diplomats there and they cost money and look, look you know, our payroll's going down. Yeah, over 700 people. Um, but anybody who, who knows even inkling about international diplomacy knows that at a time when you have a new Cold War, effectively, with Russia, where we are at loggerheads on so many things, having more diplomats is better. Yeah. Because more communication, more talking, more cooperation on cultural things and, you know, non-controversial things, which is what a lot of diplomats do as well. They go to concerts, they go to dinners, they hang out with their Russian counterparts, um, their families hang out. I mean, there's sort of, there's not many places where we are interacting with the Russians right now on a regular basis, our governments anyway. And um, this is 
one of the major areas. And, and his view is, well, we, we don't need them anyway. You know, so it's a good thing that Putin kicked him out. So I think I think that shocked a lot of people. I think the State Department literally almost plotzed. Yeah. It's the Yiddish word, but they literally yeah. fell over. He said, what? And he said it in a way that he wasn't joking. I mean, he was like, oh, this is good news and, you know, don't worry about it. And also, I mean, just the, the frame of the president praising Putin for retaliating against the sanctions that Trump reluctantly signed into law to punish Putin for meddling in our election. That is, I mean, it's like hard to get your brain around that. I mean, there's, you were saying earlier in the program, you don't want to psychoanalyze, but there's, it's hard not to think that there's some kind of huge man crush going on here. <laughs> um, and I mean, and we've it, all seen those shirtless pictures mean, of Putin. I mean, who does, can blame him, right? It right? doesn't Am I mean right? that, 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 that Trump owes Putin something. It doesn't mean that there was some backhanded deal. It doesn't mean any of that. But there, there's something about Putin that he just reveres. And he just he can't help himself but say nice things about him no matter how many bad things the guy does. That's yeah. the thing. Like Trump for a guy is so negative and he's so pessimistic and everything he says is so just bleak. But when it comes to Putin. But when it comes to Putin, he will find the, the, the optimism. and rainbows. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Brian Bender, national security writer and an editor for Politico. Thank you so much for stopping by. Some Happy thoughtful, by. thoughtful conversation. All right. All right. We're if not a little bit terrifying. A little frankly, bit terrifying. But, but just, just a but little bit. But it's Friday. Bit. It's Friday. Can, so it's, it's going to be okay, everybody. Exactly. All right. We're going to just take a take a quick. No, we're not. We're just transitioning right in. We're doing a little switcheroo here. Can I just play but, a quick thing? Yeah, I, I want to ahead. play this for you. Because yesterday we talked about this guy, Ron Hubbard. Uh, not L. Ron Hubbard from Scientology. That's what I was thinking, yeah. But this guy, Ron Hubbard, who runs a business in California where he sells bunkers and, like, apocalypse supplies, oh, things like he, that. his business is booming. Well, here he is. We, here's a follow-up from yesterday, because we talked about it yesterday. Here he is uh, talking about how many bunkers he sold. I've sold, like, 30 in the last two days. But that, in the old days, would have been a year's worth. So, like... People have gone out and bought a year's worth of bunkers in the in the last week, oh and this my. is in California, which of course was one of the places that could get hit since huh. it's that side of the country. But people are freaking out. He's sold out of things like iodine pills that people take to prevent the absorption of, of nuclear uh, waste. You know, I gotta say, it's like we it's all full uh, preppers, man. So my 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 husband uh, works at works in the government and uh he <laughs> he uh, did come home the other day and say that they were talking about having a bag packed ready to go a go bag a go bag yeah, yeah, in no, case of an emergency oh you have one yeah. both one at home and one at work uh just to be ready to for for whatever uh, and uh, and also then we had to have a conversation about, well, if something happens, we should probably meet at our house and that we have two dogs that one of the dogs we can is probably just going to run away because she's very like scared of loud noises and she's not going to want to stay with us. She's going to be on her own. And the other dog is going to be fine because he's going to want to be with us. But like the fact that we even have to make those plans really gives me a sense of deep understanding for how during the Cold War you had the drills of getting under your desk and and all that. All right. Well, from the terrifying to the 
slightly less terrifying. Uh, Sandberger is the uh, yeah. former senior health policy advisor for President Obama's Domestic Policy Council, and he's my great colleague uh, at the Center for American Progress, where he's senior policy advisor. Sam, uh, save us from this North Korea nightmare, and let's actually talk about a bit of a bright spot in our current political conversation, and that is health care. Yeah. We're no longer talking about just repealing it. Yay, 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 yay. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's fantastic, right? I think last time you were here, you and I talked about the repeal possibility. Now maybe that's off the table for, for some period of time. And there appears to be some consensus about fixing and building on the successes of Obamacare, particularly when it comes to stabilizing the healthcare markets. There's some new consensus, bipartisan consensus, about how to best get that done. Tell us what you know. Well, uh, so first of all, it's, it's very promising to see folks even talking about trying to make things better. Yes. Trying to make things uh. much, much worse. <laughs> um, so we are seeing some movement, some movement on uh, the Hill, uh, largely on the Senate side, a little bit um, on the House side as well. Uh, on the Senate side, you're seeing sort of more high-ranking folks, you know, holding hearings, that kind of, or uh, Those planning are coming in September. Hearings. Yes, hearings to come. Set your uh, but you also saw a bipartisan group in the House that came out with a plan. Um, and so I think this is a good sign. Folks are all dancing around the same sort of core set of principles, which is one, uh, undo the sabotage damage that Trump has already done. Two, prevent him from doing more damage. And then three, make some common sense changes to the marketplace that will help, you know, drive down premiums and increase the number of people with access. Um, you know, there are a couple, I think different people have a different sense of where exactly they want to go. Some ideas are better than others. But it's one of these things where uh, it's good to let the process play out. You know, people actually have a discussion, hold hearings. Oh, my God, bring in experts to share their views. Oh, hearings, experts, Crazy, discussion, yes. yeah. markups. If if the health care oh. bill was your, your first experience with legislation, this will all be very strange to you. But <laughs> following legislation for really any of the, you know, 200-year period before, this will look a lot more uh, normal. Yeah. So uh, that's a good sign. And, you know, obviously there there are better and worse ways to tr go about trying to fix these uh, issues. But just having the conversation, I think, is a real positive step. And I think we'll learn a lot more in September when folks come back and start really getting into the nitty-gritty of what they're, they're interested in doing. And then... So I want to get a bit into the in the, to the detail in a second, but it's also hard to resolve this push that you see from Congress, from these high-ranking Republicans in Congress, people like Lamar Alexander, for instance, talking about now is the time to really see if we can stabilize the markets. Also, Orrin Hatch saying the same thing. So that's happening on one hand, and you have these wonks. Uh, liberals and conservatives coming together and having consensus and how they can do this and putting together a package. Great. We're all excited. And on the other hand, on a daily basis, you have the president mm -hmm. demanding that Mitch McConnell pull some magic trick out of his hat and push repeal and replace through. I mean, at the end of the day, all of this depends on Trump's signing whatever it is that Congress comes up with. I mean, how do we reconcile those two forces? The the Congress seems to understand that there's no public support for repeal and there's real no way to get it done. But the president clearly is not there yet. Well, it's interesting. I mean, this is actually something that Congress is confronting, you know, on a number in a number of areas, namely, how do you keep President Trump from hurting folks, from screwing things up, from making things worse? I mean, you saw it with the Russia sanctions bill. 
right, which is an incredible rebuke of the president where they basically say, we don't trust you to do foreign policy with Russia. I think your last segment might have explained a little bit why that's the case. And there's a similar issue here. You know, Trump is actively working to sabotage the marketplace. He's threatening to cut off billions of dollars in payments, which leads to increased premiums. We just had a report come out the other day, yesterday, I think it was. Just in time. (laughs) Yeah. So that from Kaiser, Kaiser Family Foundation, showing basically across the board, insurers are saying in their rate filings, uncertainty is driving up prices. You have cases where some insurers are saying over 90% of the premium increase is caused by Trump, caused by threats he's made to not enforce the individual mandate, which will lead to a sicker risk pool, uh, which costs more, and to not make these payments, which basically pull billions of dollars of payments out of the system. Premiums go up to cover that difference. So it's one of these situations where I think Congress is confronting in a lot of ways. Hopefully, people will be able to put aside the animus they have towards President Obama, the, you know, uh, these quote-unquote promises, although, as I've repeatedly said, you know, I don't remember anyone promising to take, you know, 20 million people's health care away. But anyway, I mean, these he promised claims, a big, beautiful plan that wouldn't leave anybody uninsured that the yeah. government would pay for. But, you know, to actually things. focus on how to make the market better. And, and part of that is limiting Trump's authority and, and keeping him from hurting people more. <laughs> I mean, it's a crazy thing to say, but it, it's the reality of, of the world we live in. Yeah, and and so, we're seeing it in, in multiple places. Yeah. And clearly some Republicans are now coming around mm-hmm. to that to that line of thinking. They've got to really constrain him. So let's talk about some of those details of how to stabilize the market. And mm-hmm. I think we just have to be clear that, you know, there there is uh, a, a push from progressives to talk about bigger and bolder mm-hmm. health care reform, things like Medicare for all or single payer. This isn't that effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is an effort to take the existing law, the existing markets, to try to suck out some of that uncertainty that mm-hmm. insurers are responding to and as a result are increasing premiums. So what are some of the mechanisms that lawmakers are going to be considering um, when they hold the hearings this fall? So I think one of the biggest, if not the biggest, has to do around cost-sharing reduction payments. So these are Your payments. favorite. Yeah. <laughs> these are payments um, that are made to issuers to have them bring down deductibles, co-pays, other out-of-pocket costs for low-income folks. Trump has been threatening to shut these down. That would take billions of dollars out of the system, which would lead to premiums going up to cover that difference. It actually would be about a 19% premium increase across the board. So one thing Congress can do is just make sure that that promise will be kept, that the money will be there uh, to pay for this. And that'll bring premiums down and, and won't cost the government a dime because the payments are already being made, right? So they're already factored in when we're talking about, you know, what the budget looks like. So that's a really simple one. Uh, and again, an example of taking it out of his hands. Yeah. 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 It's basically removing his ability to threaten the American people. Uh, another idea that you've seen in the Senate bill um, and that you know we at the Center for American Progress have put forward as well is this idea of reinsurance. And so uh, when you look at a risk pool, a lot of the cost is usually in any given year uh, a result of a few people that have very high medical expenses. But it's hard for insurers to know, you know what number of those people, if any, they're going to get. And so they basically have to put in a cushion into their premiums. You step in, you say, well, we're going to cover the highest cost people at a certain point. Then they can, they meaning insurers, can bring premiums down across the marketplace. It's a plan that's worked very well in Alaska. You've seen it work previously in Maine. Um, and so, and it was also a part of the Affordable Care Act, but it was temporary at the time. I think it uh, would be a good idea for insurers to look at that, or excuse me, uh, for members of Congress to look at that now, in part to reduce 
a lot of the uncertainty that has been created by the current administration and give you know insurers a little bit more confidence uh, that the marketplace is going to be there. It's going to be strong, robust, et cetera. So now Republicans have painted those mechanisms, reinsurance, risk corridors, as bailouts to insurers. I mean, I remember Marco Rubio like railed against it at one point and you said it was temporary, so it just expired, those programs at the time. Mm. So, uh, but but now they're looking at them anew? Now they're saying, mm-hmm. if this is what we need to stabilize the market, maybe this is what we should do? Yes. I mean, I, all of these talks about bailouts and the like was really just rhetoric in an effort to undermine the Affordable Care Act. I mean, a lot of these same programs you saw in the Senate bill, um, I don't think that, that anyone at the time seriously believed, meaning the people saying it, um, the people coming up with these talking points. This was all part of a concerted effort to undermine the Affordable Care Act. It's the reason that there was never a technical fix bill. It's the mm. reason that scores of governors haven't expanded Medicaid, basically left free money on the table, but also left their own constituents out in the cold with no coverage. So this is this was a concerted effort. Hopefully, you know, now that it's become clear that the Affordable Care Act is working, that people really care about it, people care a tremendous amount about Medicaid, they care about health care, and they think people should have it, Republicans will put aside these failed efforts, put aside trying to undermine it, trying to hurt people's care, and work on actually improving. And there's a lot of things you do. We didn't even talk about this, but obviously, you know, there are a bunch of governors who yeah. can expand Medicaid, yeah. get that free money, and just and expand coverage. And you could talk about millions of people that could have coverage, millions of low-income people, some of our most vulnerable, who would be able to get coverage. And those governors that have done it, you know, you notice the people that have actually done it, they're the ones that don't want to get rid of it. They've seen what's happening. They've seen how effective it is in helping them address, address things like opioid abuse, provide basic care, bring down uh, uncompensated care costs for hospitals, help rural hospitals. So, I mean, it's basically a no-brainer. The folks that have done it realize that. Uh, it's time for everyone else to come along. It's what, 32 states have expanded? Uh, 32, 33? 31. 31. I think if I might have the last count. or something, yeah. yeah. Including, like, I think it's like a little over a dozen of red, red, red Republican states. Yeah, the exact number of Republican states. I, don't have, but, I mean, obviously, it's, it's a number. You know, yeah. One's like, uh, well, like also some of them expanded when they didn't have Republican governors. But mm, you have over right. the time, you know, because this has now been a, a couple cycles that this has been in there. Yes, yeah, so you have a number of Republican governors who either started themselves or are continuing an expansion that began under their predecessor. And, and they recognize them. They were actually some of them, you know, John Kasich, um, Sandoval. We're talking about the importance of Medicaid, what it meant to their state and how they couldn't lose it. Now, you know, I spent a lot of time covering the passage of health reform in 2009, 2010. And I don't think I would have guessed, and I don't think anyone really would have, that Medicaid in this repeal fight really became the Mm -hmm. centerpiece upon which these moderate Republicans, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, said, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. We can't repeal the law because of Medicaid. Uh, it's it's really, to me, remarkable how a program that people traditionally thought, because it serves low-income Americans mm-hmm. as politically vulnerable, became something like Medicare or Social Security that even Republicans are now fighting to protect. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things people didn't realize was this is not your parents' Medicaid. (laughs) This is a much more expansive, comprehensive program. It's driving a lot of innovation in the market. And it's, you know, incredibly useful tool for governors in addressing a wide range of public health health issues. Um, So it's a different Medicaid. In fact, one of the things uh, when I was leaving the White House that I, you know, 
prior to knowing who was going to be following us in, but I was excited about sort of the future of Medicaid, what that meant, and trying to help people understand that this wasn't the kind of patchwork quilt of programs before where people would be left out. I mean, obviously, in some states, that's still the case, but it was really becoming a comprehensive way for uh, governors, for states to deal with their low-income population, to make sure that they're getting health care, but also, as I said, driving innovation, driving new ways of delivering care, of helping those folks. So, uh, a great program. Well, there's no better way to leave the leave this program than talking about the greatness of Medicaid. A great <laughs> way to also end the week. Sam Berger, thank you very much. Former Senior Health Policy Advisor for President Obama's Domestic Policy Council and Senior Policy Advisor at the Center for American Progress. I'm Igor Volsky. I'm going on vacation. Don't call me. Bye. This is The Bill Press Show. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.